Reading this case, I was reminded of Esposito in the old Woody Allen movie, Bananas. He declared that all children under 16 years old are now 16 years old. Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal. In each episode of the California Appellate Law Podcast, we provide trial attorneys with legal analysis and practice tips from an appellate perspective. Both of us are appellate specialists who split our practices evenly between trial and appellate courts. We both work directly with trial attorneys before, during, and after trial to prepare cases for appeal. In this podcast, we offer some of that appellate perspective on various issues that arise in trial court and on appeal. So welcome to the third episode of the California Appellate Law Podcast. This time we'll be focusing on summary judgment motions. MSJs are pretty bread and butter as far as trial practice goes, so I suspect some listeners might be doubtful we can tell them much that they don't already know. What do you think, Jeff? Well, I would disagree. In fact, uh, you sent me some of over the uh, some of the cases that we're going to be discussing today, and I learned some things I didn't know, and I've been practicing over 20 years. Uh, I would say uh, after anti-slap motions, summary judgment motions are the procedure that contain the most traps for the unwary. Uh, let's start with some of the basics about summary judgment procedure as to appeals. Normally, an order granting summary judgment or adjudication is not directly appealable. Instead, if somebody wants to appeal, they have to appeal the judgment following the granting of such an order. Yes, and that's one of those rules that tells a lie, because <laughs> sometimes an appellate court will forgive a party that appeals a summary judgment order rather than waiting for the judgment itself, and they will just deem that order appealable. That's what happened in the 2015 case of Ung versus Kohler out of the First District Division One. In that case, a secured lender recorded a deed of trust against the defaulted borrower's real property. And the borrower believed that the lender should not be able to enforce the loan because that loan had been in default for about a decade, and thus it should have been time barred. So the borrower filed suit to enjoin the lender from foreclosing, and the plaintiff borrower filed an MSJ, and the court granted it. But before the trial judge could enter judgment, the defendant lender rushed ahead and appealed. So you can already see the problem here because an order granting summary judgment is not appealable. You're supposed to wait for the judgment. Right. At that point, I'd file a motion to dismiss the appeal for lacking jurisdiction. Well, what happened here is in a footnote, the court acknowledged that the order was, of course, obviously not appealable. As in, what are you thinking appealing the order granting a summary judgment instead of the actual judgment? But discreetly handling the matter tucked away in a footnote, the first district cited a case that had deemed an order granting summary judgment to be, ta-da, a judgment. And it cited another case that simply deemed an order granting summary judgment to be appealable, which in my eyes does a little more violence to the rules of appealability, but there you go. The parties apparently agreed that the court could review the order. So the court just deemed the non-appealable order here to be appealable. I wonder, Tim, if the parties had not stipulated and the respondent had done what I suggested, which is, you know, make a motion to dismiss the appeal for lack of jurisdiction, I wonder if the court would have granted the motion for lack of appellate jurisdiction. Uh, you know, I don't think so. Other cases have been pretty emphatic that parties can't stipulate to manufacture appellate jurisdiction. So I really don't think the party's agreement amounted to a hill of beans here. 
the court had its appealability analysis socked away in an inconspicuous footnote, and then it just proceeded to reverse. Had the court not wanted to reverse, you can bet the appeal simply would have been dismissed on non-appealability non grounds. But the court obviously did want to reverse. And when a court of appeal wants to reverse an order, you can expect that the order will be deemed appealable or else the appeal will just be deemed a writ petition. Reading this case, I was reminded of Esposito in the old Woody Allen movie, Bananas, after Esposito made himself the new president of San Marcos and said, uh, he declared that all children under 16 years old are now 16 years old. <laughs> all right. So the next summary judgment case we wanted to cover today was Mosley versus Pacific Specialty Insurance Company. 20, it's a 2020 decision. And, uh, but before we jump into the, the facts of Mosley, I want to cover the basics of burden shifting in a summary judgment case. In a summary judgment uh, motion, the moving partner, normally the defendant, has an initial burden to prove to the trial court that the case has no merit. If the moving party fails to meet that burden, then the motion is supposed to be denied without regard to what evidence or arguments are raised by the opposing party, usually the plaintiff. If the burden is met by the defendant, then the burden of proof shifts to the plaintiff to prove a triable issue of fact exists that warrants going to trial. Now, getting back to the Mosley case, the majority reversed a summary judgment below based on a theory that had not been argued at the trial level. There was a dissenting opinion in this case pointing out that reversing on grounds not raised below creates a new rule of appellate procedure. I don't know that I agree with the dissent here. Courts of appeal frequently have the option to look at questions of law for the first time on appeal, and I tend to side with the majority on this one. The majority in Mosley held that the defendant simply did not meet its initial burden. What about you, Tim? Uh, you know, I think I actually do agree with Justice Menetrez's dissent here. Um, maybe not for the reasons that are articulated in the dissent, though. I do agree with you that legal conclusions usually may be affirmed on any available grounds. And the Court of Appeal is not limited to the grounds cited by the trial court in most cases. But summary judgments are different because they have a special procedure with special requirements. One of those special procedures is that the party opposing the summary judgment motion has the right under Section 437C Subdivision H to seek discovery. If that discovery is denied, that may pose an independent grounds for reversal. So when the court reached for a different legal theory to affirm the summary judgment here, I think the court effectively excised that important discovery safeguard from the statute. That is not something raised in the dissent, but it, it is an argument that I would have made. Well, let me push back on you for a minute on that one. I hate to put you on the spot, but let me just ask, when you are making a motion to ask for discovery in the face of a summary judgment motion, are you asking for discovery to help you shift your burden as a plaintiff and avoid summary judgment? Or are you looking for discovery to avoid the plaintiff's, the defendant's ability to meet their initial burden? Because if it's the latter, then maybe that's not a concern in terms of the result that happened here in Mosley. If the burden gets shifted back onto you and the court of appeal decides that you didn't meet your burden, you would want to be able to argue that you availed yourself of the or attempted yeah. to avail yourself of the, those discovery rights under subdivision H by seeking discovery as to those issues so that the, uh, the court couldn't fault you for not satisfying your burden if and when it did get shifted to you. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's, a, uh, that's a good reason to always consider filing a motion for discovery 
under subdivision H when opposing a summary judgment motion. In that motion, I would specifically enumerate the legal theories that were advanced in the motion. And I would state that, uh, that I specifically intend to conduct discovery on them so that if ever any new theories are advanced, uh, I would lay on the indignation good and thick, emphasizing all the discovery that I tried to do based on the stated legal theories so that I couldn't be faulted for not having opposed secret undisclosed legal theories. You know, you make a good point, maybe even going so far as to attach proposed discovery uh, that you would, uh, would serve if the motion were granted. That's what I would do. Yeah. And I think we find a similar lesson about discovery and MSJs in our next case, which is a published 2020 decision, Sosa versus Cash Call. In a split decision, the 4th District Division Three Court reversed a summary judgment on the grounds that plaintiff had been denied discovery. What is noteworthy in this case is that the majority avoids the question of standard of review. As we know, trial court orders relating to discovery are normally reviewed for abuse of discretion, but the majority here simply never mentions what the standard of review is. Instead, the majority appears to review the discovery issue under a de novo lens, indicating the trial court had erred in its discovery ruling. Not abused its discretion, but erred. In his dissent, Justice Aronson says that at worst, he thought the trial court's ruling was a close call, but certainly not an abuse of discretion. So I think the result in the Sosa versus cash call case suggests this strategy. If you've lost a motion for summary judgment because you were denied discovery of relevant evidence, frame the issue as a violation of 437C subdivision C. That subdivision requires the trial court to consider, quote, all inferences reasonably deducible from the evidence, end quote. And it also requires that the court must, quote, resolve doubts about the propriety of granting the motion in favor of the party opposing it, end quote. The Sosa court held that under these standards, the trial court's order denying discovery amounted to legal error. So again, if there is discovery you're having trouble getting, consider seeking it in connection with a, an opposition to an MSJ. The statutory procedures under 437C appear to entitle the party seeking discovery to a more favorable standard of review on appeal. Yeah, that's great advice. I think I'm going to start uh, incorporating that into my uh, strategy going forward. Uh, there's no doubt that discovery can make or break a summary judgment motion. Back in 1995, Division 5 of the 2nd District issued its decision in Union Bank versus Superior Court, holding that a defendant in moving for summary judgment may rely on a plaintiff's factually devoid discovery responses to meet the defendant's initial burden of demonstrating a cause of action has no merit. For example, when a party responds in discovery that, oh, the case was just filed or discovery is continuing, but no real facts are disclosed, a defendant may attach such discovery responses to their moving papers and meet their initial burden for summary judgment. Let me ask you a question, Tim. What would you think would happen when a defendant serves interrogatories and the plaintiff, instead of answering those interrogatories, points to documents that have been produced in the litigation? Is that a factually devoid discovery response for purposes of Union Bank? It sounds like you're talking about the responding party's right to respond to an interrogatory by identifying documents from which the answer would be derived. Uh, no, that would not be considered a factually devoid response that could support the moving party's burden on summary judgment. And that precise situation was brought up recently in 
I'm going to, I'm going to try real hard with this name, Byra Moglu versus Nation Star Mortgage LLC. Uh, that's a third district decision that held that litigants are entitled to invoke that discovery procedure that we've talked about under Code of Civil Procedure 2030.230 by pointing to documents in lieu of responding. You know, I have to say, under the facts of that case, I think that case was rightly decided, but I could see this being abused where you have a large deep pocket uh, party on one side that buries the other side in thousands and thousands of documents and doesn't precisely point to a page or a discrete number of pages and just says, hey, go look at the documents. I could see uh, a, a, a good faith argument being raised that those are factually devoid discovery responses. I think that's a fair point. Now, let me move on to what, uh, what is my favorite recent summary judgment case. This is the 2018 case of Aon versus Esquire Deposition Solutions. It's another case out of the four-third. And it's also another case involving summary judgments and burden shifting. Aon is a personal injury plaintiff in that case who was in a car crash with the deposition scheduling manager for Esquire. At the time of that accident, the scheduling manager had been on the phone with an Esquire court reporter. So that is the plaintiff's hook for vicarious liability, obviously. But aha, not so fast, says Esquire. At her deposition, that scheduling manager had testified that she and the court reporter were close friends. They talked on the phone every week and that the phone call during the accident had actually nothing to do with Esquire's business. Esquire uses that deposition transcript testimony to file an MSJ arguing that there could be no vicarious liability. And the trial court granted summary judgment. On appeal, plaintiff argued that the scheduler's phone records showed no calls with the court reporter in the past six months. So plaintiff argued that this created a triable issue over the scheduler's deposition testimony about whether the phone call during the accident had been personal or whether it was work-related uh, so as to establish or tend to create a triable issue concerning vicarious liability. But the Court of Appeal rejected plaintiff's argument and affirmed the summary judgment. The court's reasoning was that once a moving defendant meets its burden on a motion for summary judgment, the opposing party cannot rely on mere attacks on credibility. The court noted that plaintiff had not supplied any other evidence to support its respondeat superior theory, and poking holes in a defendant's evidence tending to disprove plaintiff's theory will not be regarded as evidence in favor of that theory. As attorney and blogger Michael Shipley put it in his 111 North Hill Street blog, I don't believe you is not evidence. <laughs> You know, there's a similar rule that summary judgment cannot be avoided merely by submitting a declaration from a witness that contradicts the witness's previous testimony uh, in uh, D'Amico versus Board of Medical Examiners from 1974. But for that rule to apply, it has to really contradict. There can't be ambiguities from which inferences of inconsistency could be drawn. And that comes from another case, Turley v. Familian Corporation from 2017. One more uh, burden-shifting case is uh, McAlpine versus Norman uh, from 2020. This is a medical malpractice case where a doctor moved for summary judgment in a case brought by a patient. The doctor's moving papers included a declaration by an expert physician who reviewed medical records and stated a simple conclusion. So far, so good. The doctor said that the underlying defendant accused of medical malpractice had performed within the standard of care. But the problem here was the declaration 
didn't really have any analysis or supporting facts. It was just a conclusion uh, saying, I've looked at the records and defendant doctor acted within the standard of care. The patient opposed the motion, but didn't have any opposing medical expert declaration. On that basis, the trial court granted summary judgment. The patient appealed and the court of appeal reversed. And the question resolved in this case was, what evidence does a defendant in a medical malpractice need to meet his initial burden in a summary judgment and shift the burden to the plaintiff to establish a tribal issue of fact? The answer in this case was that when a medical expert offers a standard of care opinion, the expert has to provide the court with more than a simple conclusion that the standard of care was met. The expert, expert has to have a reasoned opinion and it has to be supported with facts. You know, Jeff, when you uh, brought this case to my attention, it reminded me there's a, there's a uh, published case recently that held something similar. I don't have the, the case name off the top of my head, but we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, but I do recall that that case held for the defendant. It was a, a medical malpractice case where the plaintiff opposed a nursing home's motion for summary judgment on the basis of a doctor's conclusory declaration. And the trial court granted summary judgment and the first district affirmed finding that the declaration failed to meet the Sargon standard for expert opinion. All right, let's shift gears here again and talk about when and whether a plaintiff should seek a continuance in response to a summary judgment motion. Code of Civil Procedure Section 437C's drafters included a provision making continuances, which are normally a matter within the broad discretion of the trial court, virtually mandated upon a good faith showing by affidavit that a continuance is needed to obtain facts essential to justify opposition to the motion. That's the uh, Ball v. Bank of America case from 2001, uh, making that, that request virtually mandatory. The court also has the discretion to deny the MSJ in its entirety on the, in, in its entirety on the same basis. If it appears from the affidavit submitted in opposition to a motion for summary judgment or a summary adjudication or both, that the facts essential to justify opposition may exist, but cannot for reasons stated be presented, the court shall deny the motion, order a continuance to permit affidavits to be obtained or discovery to be had, or make any other order as may be just. That procedure is very pro-plaintiff, but I don't see it invoked frequently in the cases I'm involved in. How about you, Tim? No, we don't see discovery motions much in our MSJ practice either. But after reading the cases that we've been discussing today, I don't know why that is. Because I now tend to think that when a MSJ is filed against my client, it may be a good opportunity to get critical discovery quickly and painlessly. And if I don't get what I ask for, I may be entitled to something like favorable de novo review on appeal rather than the uphill climb of abuse of discretion. And that's because Section 437C, Subdivision H, seems to limit the court's discretion on discovery rulings when it is sought in connection with opposing a motion for summary judgment. I think a non-moving party could get away with much more discovery in this situation than normal. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. Either they get more discovery than they otherwise would be entitled to, or they uh, present their appellate lawyers with another additional argument to raise on appeal. So it's a win-win. Well, let's wrap up our discussion on MSJs with some appellate tips on how to make a good record for your summary judgment. First, make your evidentiary objections. Make them in writing and then raise them again at the hearing. Do not let the judge leave the bench without getting rulings on your evidentiary objections. Next, in making your evidentiary objections, be sure to preserve objections to authenticity of documents. 
in the absence of an objection, the document will be deemed authentic under evidence code 1414 and the issue will be waived on appeal. That's the Levin versus Ligon 2016 case. All cases uh, referenced in the podcast are in the show notes. Similarly, under section 437C subdivision D, that section expressly states that if you're objecting to the foundation of declarations and you do not make that objection at the hearing, the objection is deemed waived. So again, make sure you reiterate your objections at the hearing. Yeah. And as you know, the most important document in making or opposing a summary judgment is a separate statement. And you brought this case and this rule to my attention that I was completely unaware of, that the separate statement has to be, quote, plain and concise, close quote. I can't tell you how many cases I've been involved in where either the moving or the opposing side throws in everything but the kitchen sink, and you'll have hundreds and hundreds of facts, and each fact supported by eight or nine different declarations. But uh, this case you pointed me to, Rush v. White Corp, gives the, uh, the court discretion to completely disregard a separate statement that is not plain and concise. That was really eye-opening to me. Let me ask you something about that, Jeff. What I've done in my practice is I have tried to comply with the plain and concise requirement by pinpointing the evidence that is directly supportive of my undisputed fact. But when I have additional evidence that I think is secondarily supportive, I will put that in a second paragraph with a C citation so as not to obscure from the directly relevant evidence, but uh, so as not to waive my right to rely on that evidence at the hearing or on appeal. What do you think about that? Will that run afoul of the, of the plain and concise limitation? You know, it depends. Uh, I wonder how long your, uh, your opposition was and if it unnecessarily turned your separate statement from a five-page separate statement to a 15-page separate statement because of all your see also sites. Yeah, difficult call for practitioners to make then. Uh, another point trial lawyers need to remember in terms of summary judgment is uh, the proposed order. First of all, preparing a proposed order in advance, ensuring it complies with the requirements of the statute, Code of Civil Procedures, Section 437C, Subdivision G. The order must specify one or more of material facts on which there's a controversy if it's, a motion, if it's an order denying a motion. And the order has to specifically refer to the evidence if it's denying a motion. And orders granting summary judgment must specify the reasons for its determination and spell, shall specifically refer to the evidence showing no triable issue. So if the court grants a motion for summary judgment, do not set up an appeal by letting the court enter a defective order. And also, uh, the court might refer to the evidence supporting the uh, order orally. So it's very important, this kind of motion, to have a court reporter present. As a related point, do not put in your proposed order that the order granting summary judgment is based <laughs> on, quote, the court's entire file. I've seen that. Well, well, most practitioners probably use a motion template that has that verbiage in the notice of motion and probably just put that into the order for good measure. But do not use that in the MSJ notice. 437C subdivision B7 requires that a motion for summary judgment, quote, shall set forth with specificity the exact matter to which reference is being made and shall not incorporate the entire file. So it leaves no question that the legislature does not want the trial court being made to suffer through the entire file looking for uh, evidence in ruling on these motions. Also, if judicial notice 
or judicial admissions are in any way involved in your MSJ, review those doctrines carefully. If evidence qualifies as judicial notice or as a judicial admission, the evidence cannot be controverted. But if the trial court misapplies those doctrines and erroneously deems your evidence to be uncontrovertible, your summary judgment may be susceptible to attack on appeal. Well, that concludes our discussion of summary judgment motions. Let's discuss some of the recent legal news. This week, uh, things are changing rapidly with respect to the COVID virus and the LA Superior Court issued a new uh, order indicating they're not conducting any civil trials until August 10th at the earliest. And trials that are neither entitled to preference and, and that are not UD or unlawful detainer trials, those aren't going to trial until 2021. So the slowdown continues. A case that uh, caught my eye recently was Lorick versus Hunt and Enriquez, uh, issued by the Third District Court of Appeal. Uh, this case caught my eye because it's a, a case involving uh, California's anti-slap law. Uh, an anti-slap motion was filed, but the Court of Appeal decided to publish this decision to call out uh, lawyers who refer to these motions as anti-slap motions. Uh, they, that court prefers it when litigants and parties refer to the motions as special motions to strike. <laughs> you know, I think good luck with that. I tend to think that uh, that horse has left a barn a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> I tend to agree. And also there was a case where uh, appellate justices admonished trial lawyers not to be cheap when it comes to court reporters. Uh, the court's exact words were, uh, there's no transcript of this hearing. When appreciable sums are in play, it's mysterious why lawyers on both sides think the small cost of court reporting is a good cost to avoid. We publish this opinion in part to discourage misplaced thrift. That's a, a good reminder to uh, always have a court reporter at key hearings. And that's the uh, Pacifica First National case that we'll put in the, uh, in the notes. I think as appellate attorneys, the email that I send most to trial attorneys is, do you have a court reporter for the hearing tomorrow? Unless, you, unless the tentative's in your favor. Have you ever been in a situation, Tim, where the tentative was in your favor and you advised the trial court not to have a court reporter there because of a favorable standard of review or uh, difficulties in terms of preparing the appellate record that would be on the appellate? Well, I, I do consider that, but I'm almost too squeamish not to have a court reporter there. Have <laughs> you strategically not uh, chosen to have a court reporter not attend? Sometimes if I have a cost-sensitive client and uh, I have a high degree of confidence that uh, the tentative will be sustained, uh, we do make that decision. Yep. Well, I like to, uh, I, would, I would like to have unanimity with my client and, and the trial attorney on any call <laughs> like that. Well, one last bit of news. The California Supreme Court just this week announced it will permanently lower the passing score for the California bar exam and it released plans for an October test administered online. I've got some friends who graduated law school with me who would have appreciated having that, uh, that uh, cutoff uh, lowered. All right, well, uh, that wraps up this episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email us at calpodcast at gmail.com. On the next episode, we will cover preliminary injunctions, right to attach orders, and some other interlocutory orders. See you next time, everyone. You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. 
That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening and please join us again 